An old Hasidic rabbi, Levi Yichek of Berdachev in the Ukraine, claimed that he learned the meaning of love from a drunken peasant. One morning, the rabbi was out in the Polish countryside to visit a friend of his who owned a tavern. When the rabbi walked in, he saw two men seated at a table, both gloriously in their cups, drunk as skunks, stoned out of their minds, arms wrapped around each other. Each guy was reassuring the other one how much he loved him. Suddenly, Ivan said to Peter, "Peter, tell me what hurts me." And bleary-eyed, Peter said, "How do I know what hurts you?" Ivan's answer was swift. If you don't know what hurts me, how could you say you love me? What made Jesus Christ the greatest lover in human history is that he really knew, he really knows this afternoon what's hurting his people. Back in 1981, a friend of mine, an Episcopal priest in Columbus, Ohio, walked into his office on a Monday morning. Wrote a hasty letter of resignation to the vestry. Then he returned to his home, sat down at the kitchen table, and wrote a letter to his wife and his three children, all the kids under the age of ten, that he was abandoning them. He fled to a logging camp in New England, took a job in Vermont as a logger, and one Saturday afternoon in January, it was about ten below zero. This priest was sitting in a portable aluminum trailer that he'd rented. The only source of heat was a tiny portable aluminum heater. Well, the heater suddenly quit and died. Within minutes, the temperature in the trailer was below zero. Shivering in a fit of rage, the priest picked up the heater, flung it through the window, broke the window, and shouted, "Christ, I hate you! Damn it, God, get out of my life! I'm finished with this Christian crap. It's all over." He sank to his knees, defeated and weeping. And in the bright darkness of faith, you heard a voice from within say, "It's okay, Kevin. I understand. I'm here. I'm with you, and I'm for you." Then he heard Jesus weeping within him. Christ felt what he was feeling. It was an overwhelming experience of intimacy. That same afternoon, Kevin Martin packed his bags, returned to Columbus to be reconciled with his family and his church, and has gone on to pastor the most dynamic, alive, spirit-filled Episcopal church in America, St. Luke's in Seattle, Washington. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, the favorite of my soul, and he will proclaim the true faith to the nations. The bruised reed he will not crush. The smoldering wick he will not quench. You read the Gospels closely. You notice how fine-tuned Jesus is to our anger, our frustration, our emptiness, our loneliness, our fears, our self-hatred, our shame. Throughout his public ministry on earth, the. Encounter with the prostitute, the hump of Simon the Pharisee, with the adulterous woman in danger of stoning, with the thrice-denying Peter in his tonight, with the young apostle John in the upper room on the night before he died, 
Here we capture the essence of the life of Jesus. The Greek verb splaktizomai is used 12 times in the four Gospels and is usually translated into English as he was moved with compassion. However, because of the poverty of our English vocabulary, we really don't capture the deep etymological meaning of splaktizomai. So depending on the translation of the Bible you use, it may say he was moved with pity or he felt sorry for them or his heart went out to them. But again, they missed the profound physical and emotional flavor of this Greek verb, splachnitzomai, which is derived from the noun splachna, meaning bowels, entrails, intestines, the deepest parts of a person from which the strongest emotions like love and hatred arise. We must never forget that when we speak of the compassion of Jesus, we are speaking of the compassion of the infinite, transcendent, almighty God, of the sacred man defined by the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 AD as being co-equal and consubstantial to the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. The compassion of Jesus is the compassion of God himself, and Jesus says to your heart and mine, don't ever be so foolish as to measure my compassion for you in terms of your compassion for one another. Don't ever be so silly as to compare your thin, pallid, wavering, capricious, fickle, moody, dependent on smooth circumstances, human compassion with mine, for I am God as well as man. What I'm driving at is this. When you read in the Gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion, it is saying his gut was wrenched. His heart torn open, the most vulnerable part of his being laid bare. Spagnitsuai in Greek is related to the Hebrew word for compassion, rakamim, which refers to the womb of Yahweh. Compassion is such a deep, central, powerful emotion in Jesus Christ that it can only be described as a movement within the womb of God himself, where all the divine tenderness and gentleness lie hidden, where God is mother, father, brother, sister, son, and daughter, where all feelings, emotions, and passions are one in divine love. When Jesus was moved with compassion, when he wept within the brokenness of my priest friend Kevin Martin, the gospel is saying, the ground of all being shook, the source of all life trembled, the heart of all love burst open, and the unfathomable depths of the relentless tenderness was laid bare. The numerous physical healings performed by Jesus and recorded in the Gospels are only a hint of the anguish in the heart of God's Son from wounded humanity. Even the passion and death of Jesus on Calvary is only a hint of his Abba's compassion and the substance of our faith lies in the conviction that beyond that hint, lies compassion and love beyond measure. When Jesus was moved with compassion, when he wept within the brokenness of my priest friend Kevin Martin, the gospel is saying, the ground of all being shook, the source of all life trembled, the heart of all love burst open, and the unfathomable depths of the relentless tenderness was laid bare. 
you know, when the Bible talks about, um, when the Bible talks about Jesus at his baptism, and it says the Holy Spirit came on him like a dove, it refers to, uh, in the Jewish understanding, and I, I just decided to put this in, this wasn't part of the message, just during the worship, this is what I thought to put in. It refers to the spirit that hovered over the waters when the earth was without form and, vo and void. That word hovering, that's what happened there. He said to, to John the Baptist, to the one that you see the spirit hover over. That's what the Jewish understanding was all about. You know, when the Spirit hover over him like he would hover over the earth when it was without form and void over the waters. Um, you know, that is the one that I've anointed to basically fix up everything. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is the Messiah. Now, uh, in a little bit of, um, you know, typology, what happened there was when Jesus was baptized into that river and took the sin of the world upon him, um, that water there, he was hovering again over the waters where Jesus was standing in that water. He came upon Jesus, hovering over him. And you know, when uh, th that word water, I never knew this. <clears throat> um, well, when I studied it out years ago, that word water doesn't talk about pure water like the oceans. You know, we're thinking it was just an ocean with a fish and whatever. That, you, th that, that word uh, water there. In the Hebrew is the word urine. Urine. It talks about something filthy, something dirty, that a human body, you know, passes. It doesn't, it's not, there's got no place for it anymore. You know, um, and that is, you know, when the Holy Spirit came and hovered over that mass that was actually without form and void and empty, it's a type and a shadow of what happened in Christ when He took our emptiness upon Him. When He took what, what, what our body says we don't need anymore. He took that dirt upon Him and the Spirit came and hovered and God spoke and recreated man into a garden where God can dwell. Amen. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? That is what God has come to do for us. And we look at this relentless tenderness, you know, that Bryn Manning talks about. And I believe, you know, there are some, some, sometimes when preachers say something which is simply just divine. It's inspired by God. It comes from a, a revelation that only God could give somebody. And, um, you know, I've listened to this. I've edited this out. Previous time I've done it. I've, now we've put in the words and everything. Um, I've listened to this two, three hundred times. And every time I cry when I hear this. Because what it does to my heart is, I think further than just him being a God of compassion. I'm thinking of how he felt when he, when he saw man fall into sin. And how he even felt before when he created man. You know, that compassion, that moving of your innermost being. You know, what was going on there? You know, what was, he, what was he feeling? What is inside the heart of God when Isaiah 42 was written where it says, and pointing to Jesus saying, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, the favorite of my soul. And he will proclaim the true faith to the nations. 
What is in the heart of God? That when He looks at Jesus, that He says, This is the favorite of my soul. Next Sunday I'm going to preach on what makes God great. Okay, but <coughs> when He looked at Jesus, He said, This is the favorite of my soul. Why, if, if he thinks of his soul, his mind, his will, his emotions, when he ponders upon Jesus, makes him the favorite? Isn't it you? Isn't, it, isn't Jesus all about you? That's why Jesus is God's favorite. He's the favorite of his soul because he brings beauty to the mind of God about you. And not just you, but every human being. It is beautiful to God. It pleased God to see Jesus being crushed to bring forth our deliverance because you are valuable to Him. You know, the other day, um, you guys know I always preach about uh, compassion and love from the perspective of or the agape of God when your child gets lost, you know. Um, when or, you know you, you walk in the you know my, my teaching on it where you are in the supermarket and you see him and then you see he's gone and how do you feel after five minutes and ten minutes and an hour and a day and a week how would you feel and what would be in your heart and that um, that feeling in your heart after a day or a week is, is the, the closest we can come to describe what agape is and then, you know, we can talk about somebody's child that gets lost, you know, and you can try and imagine it, but then when your child gets lost, you start to know what it's all about. And last week, Friday, <coughs> Bertus, um, you know, we, we, just to share with you what I feel God feels. Today's teaching is not going to be a very deep teaching. It's going to be more about what God feels and how we feel with Him. Um, you know, last Friday, uh, we had Nikun and, Nikun and Annette invited us to go and watch the Sound of Music with them, the play, uh, and then uh, have a meal with him before that. And Bertus, uh, you know, he didn't tell us, but he went to one of his friends. And he never does that. You know, he's been to a friend three, you know, three houses from us where we would see now he's with a friend at our house and then we see he's not there. But then we know they went to his house three houses from us and they would play but this time he just we don't know where he is and he would never go to to a guy that far from our house without telling us so it was out of the norm it wasn't normal for us so we realized but we haven't seen him for an hour and we also know that previously in the day he walked down to the shop to go and buy himself something and we thought maybe he walked again and somebody took him you know, so, so we got, first you, you, you think maybe he's just some, somewhere close. You go to the friend's house, look for him, nothing. Look again, nothing. Ask phone, nothing. After 45 minutes, we're driving up and down the midtown section and my fr with friends driving up and down, we can't find him. You know, and just the terror in your heart. Because all of a sudden you don't feel just your loss, but you start to imagine what he, should somebody have taken him or maybe he got hurt or kidnapped or whatever goes in your mind, you know, is, 
you start to feel what he must feel. And there's this is a deep, I almost want to say, a union in what he must go through. Now that's what you think, and you are stressed. And eventually, we found him after an hour. You know, and brought him home and everything. And um, you know, at the at the um, even after that, while I was driving in the car, we've already he was already there, at home, at his friends. Now the whole thing organized. Everything is now okay. I was still crying. And then while we were watching Sound of Music, I would lose attention every now and then, think of this and cry. Because I said to Helena in the car, on the way to Nikunanet, I said, you know, if he had to die, I don't want to live. That's how I feel. I'm just human. And here we find that, that ex to that extent and even beyond that, God comes and He sees us in our state where we are lost. You know, God never related to man as sinners except to the Pharisees. To normal, what we would call sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and, and bad people, He related to them as lost, not sinners. Lost is much more beautiful than sinner. You know, how do you, you can say that you, uh, um, you know, I've, a pen is missing. But a child is not missing, he's lost. Because that loss talks about value. Something that's very valuable that is in a place where it's not supposed to be. And God, man, was never missing to God. God always knew where we were. But we were lost in our unbelief. We were lost in what we thought about ourselves. We were lost in the law. That's where we were lost. The only place where you can define man as lost is in legalism. There's no other place wherein you can be lost. Outside of legalism, where you are in, in what he believes. Any other form, be it atheism, be it whatever it is, it is legalism where we are lost in the revelation of our own ability wherein we can find life. And we are lost in that. And God came in Christ to seek and to save that which was lost. And that which was lost was our revelation of who we really are. And we were bound in a system called the law where we could not get free from unless the law system really died and its effect which was sins and death. And God when he looked at man he couldn't look at us outside of the reality that he has about us and who we are. Our fall never changed God. God stayed the same and he came in his love, you know, and, 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 and redeemed us from the law so that we could believe a certain truth and that we could be saved again, you know, and come back to the original plan. I want to read this again. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved the favor of my soul, and he will proclaim, and I've put this in capital letters here in my notes, the true faith to the nations. What is the true faith? It is faith that is in line with what God believes. 
a persuasion that lines up with his persuasion. Your sins has been taken away. You are my kind. You have been designed by me. Um, I am the blueprint of who you are. I've asked myself the question yesterday, how does God know what you know? How does God know what you feel? Because we so easily say that God knows what I feel. God knows what I think. Is it just because He knows all things? Or how does He know? Even if He knows all things, my question is, how does He know? Since He is a relationship-orientated being, we cannot define His knowing outside of relationship. The only way He knows is because of His union with you. Because he's, he's so, he became so one with man in Christ Jesus that he knows your every thought. Because you have been co you are co-seated with him, because we are made out of the God design, uh, you know, and, and we function like him, as Helena and I, we are one and we live together, we do things together, and I start to know her, I know her very thought, because we are one. In the very same way, because God, God by His Spirit that speaks inside of you, talks to you, in you, you start to, He knows what you think, and you know what God thinks. That's how He knows. The reason why God knows, um, let me see if I put this in the, in the notes here. Uh, I want to just read it the way I, I put it yesterday. The re and I, I can't find it quickly, but the reason why God knows is because He knows what you believe. He, when he, he knows you believe a lie if you believe the lie. And He knows what that lie would bring forth. Therefore, because He knows what you believe and what your heart is persuaded of, He can experience what you feel. And his plan is to bring the true faith that we can know what he believes so that we can know what he feels and feel with him for his feeling with you. You know, we've done some, uh, a lot of marriage counseling the last two weeks and so, and you know, when, we, when I look at the, the marriage counseling and we look at somebody, you know, that's maybe really stubborn in a marriage, or we look at a, a guy that's cheated on his wife, we would say in our hearts, you know, Filthy. That's what we normally would say. He's stupid. We would even crack some jokes about it and say how stupid men are when they get into the middle age area. You know, we would think of a woman that is just stubborn. You know, doesn't want to listen or anything. She's just got her own ways and want to rule her husband. And all that. we would look at all those kind of things and we would say, but you know what, God? God doesn't look at it that way. He is inside that person. He knows the calculation of his brain. Why he comes to the conclusion that he comes to feeling it with him. And in that, he's moved with compassion. And the compassion that he's moved with is to deliver the man from the absolute torture that he is in without accusing but bringing a new revelation whereby he could be set free Luke 15 says that Jesus was eating he was a friend actually with sinners publicans and sinners you know the Jews in, 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 their, in their day especially the religious guys the Pharisees when they would see a sinner it wasn't just oh yeah that is a sinner when they, had, when they saw a sinner and walked past him, they would, like the one guy says, you know, you, 
they were actually trained in how to look down on somebody and sneer at him and say sinner you know we would have in our culture when we think somebody's a sinner we would kind of if you see him in the street still try and be polite and just think in your mind yeah you stupid sinner you know you've you've stolen from me or you've cheated on your wife or whatever but you still kind of be polite but these guys didn't work that way they would publicly in front of everybody sneer at you and say sinner and spit on the ground now imagine you find the religious folk that is seen as in the category of God and they know God reject you like that you start to believe the lie you start to think of yourself in the very same way but here Jesus Christ comes and he's called a friend of sinners he's called a friend of sinners he the sinners call him friend and he calls the, the, the sinners friends which was outside of Jewish logic you can never do such a thing you could never associate with such a person it would be like in today's days you becoming the best friend of the local child molester not ashamed to be seen with him in public and to eat with him in a culture where eating with means I share in your status that's what Jesus came to do he saw something in what the law called sinners that was entertaining to him that was so beautiful to him that it has drawn him to them to the point that what he did was could only be basically categorized as scandalous in the light of religion uh, in the light of legalism of that day look at the compassion that God has where his innermost being is moved where you look at your child and you find that your child's all of a sudden not there anymore if my child had to be in uh, some brothel somewhere having heroin up his veins dying I, would, I want to tell you I'm not going to think less of him as what I think right now because he is my son and I love him with all that is in me it can never change it is impossible to change it is part of my design it is who I am and I want to tell you the Almighty that emotion that feeling derives from him for we are made in his image and in his likeness and we live and move and have our being in him why are we a being that feels for our children why are we a being that even if our children would have wronged us for the millionth time we always want to give them another chance we always want to come and believe in them we always there's something when we look at our children that we say maybe we haven't been taught how to love them you know in a broken lives that are broken being brought up under parents that didn't love us correctly but there's an emotion a feeling and a passion inside every parent towards his child why because we have been made in his image and in his likeness and we have our being in God 
and that's how he feels towards us. You know, when I was standing there worshiping, and I was uh, we, we watched the DVD last night, you know, about the heavens worshiping God and all those kind of things. And we think of the stars singing his praises, the animals singing the praises of God, and, and all these beautiful things, you know. And as I was standing there, I was envisioning, uh, um, you know, singing praises to God. And then I just felt the Lord said to me, you're missing it, my son. You're standing outside of the throne room. Envision yourself where you belong. You stand with me. And these things sing the praises of the divine ones where you are seated with me I gave you that place and not even in worship remove yourself from that place and in worship this morning I just said Lord but how do I worship you he says like you would sing the praises of your wife the one moment and then you'll sing your praises so I will speak good to you you know or about you and you'll speak good about me this is not a service that you do me this is part of relationship where we talk to each other glory to God this is the God that we've got to do with and Jesus answering and said unto Simon I have somewhat to say unto you and he said and he said master say on there was a certain um, creditor which had two debtors the one owed 500 pence and the other 50 and when they had nothing to pay, the, um, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom you forgave most. And he said unto him, you have rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, this is the, this is the story, I should have just told the story before. This is the story about the woman that came, the prostitute woman that came to Jesus. And she came to the, the, the house of Simon the Pharisee and with her tears started to wash the feet of Jesus and then he said he said the following words <clears throat> oh man where is it now he said the words he said if this man was a prophet he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him for she is a sinner you see what he comes and he says if he was a real man of God he would have known her sin. But a real man of God does not know sin, but value. Jesus was not just a man of God. He was the God-man. He was God inside human flesh. He was just not a man of God. He was not, not just a prophet. He was the perfect, not just representation, He was the Father. If you wanted to see the Father, you looked at Him. And here was a woman that touched His feet. He couldn't see her sin. He didn't see her sin. He never said to her, sinner. He said, woman. He related to her as woman. They said, sinner. And spat on the ground. He said, woman. Woman, your faith has saved you that's what he said to her he defended her the sinner in the eyes of legalism he was on her side he took her side in the presence of accusation that is the God that we've come to deal with that's what we have got to swallow this is the God 
that has come and presented himself to us. And above all, we live and move and have our being in him. And we had to come and discover ourselves in him. You can never be who you truly are without God. For that is the true mirror of your design. And he has restored it all in Christ so that we can look into the mirror and see what kind of being we are and not forget and not be a forgetful hearer but be blessed in what we do which is beholding glory to God he comes and he says who will, who will be forgiven most oh, who, will, who will love most he says the one that has been forgiven most but the most glorious thing is that we've all that all of us we are equally sinful by our own works and all of us has been forgiven equal amount of sin we have been delivered forgiveness means we've been delivered from the very same evil system which is works righteousness and the measure in which we can have that revelation is the measure in which we will find agape or standing in awe of God rise in our hearts glory to God Grace was not something that was invented the day man sinned. Grace existed in the Trinity long before man was even made. Grace is the influence that the Divine Ones, Elohim, has upon each other. And then man was incorporated into that system of grace called divine influence where we are divinely influenced by the other divine ones called Father, Son and Holy Spirit and then when one of the divine ones removed himself from grace or divine influence by um, applying divine ability human works you know and fell from there then this divine influence was only extended towards the subject that fell and it manifested in a certain form called the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. But grace was not known to man under the law system. And when, when Jesus came and God came with His divine influence, which He always had, and influenced man by taking away man's unrighteousness, by taking away man's sin, we beheld the grace of God, which was always alive in the heavens, not known or seen under the Old Covenant or Old Testament. I have found on the internet and, and in, in, the, in the lives of preachers, they would love to see a little bit of grace in the old under the law to give the law place in the life of the believer but you cannot find it there it is not from Adam to Abram it's not there it's not from Abram to Moses and it's not from Moses to John the Baptist for grace and truth came by Jesus there's no truth about your life revealed in the Old Testament. For truth came by Jesus. <laughs> Jesus himself came in John 10 and he said, All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. They're all liars. 
that could not declare the truth about your life. And Jesus came and he took what they said, interpreted it, and fulfilled it by the word of God, who he was, and declared your life. Glory to God. We are dealing with a very compassionate, loving God. You know, there was a man that had two sons. It's a well-known parable in the Bible. He had two sons. And the younger said to the father, Father, give me the portion of my goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them his living. When I hear that word living, I want to cry. Because it wasn't just stuff. We talk about the real thing. He divided his life. God shared the life contained in the Trinity with man. I always say this, if you've got two sons and divide everything you have between the two sons, where do you live? You live with the sons. The sons aren't living with you anymore. You're living with them. Glory to God. And he was living with his sons, and that is us. And not, and not many days after that the younger so gathered all together and took a journey to a far country. Far country in, in Judaism was seen as talking about the place of the abomination. Going to the Gentiles, the far country, the place of abomination. Abomination was seen for those, abomination, uh, there, there's certain things in Deuteronomy, it talks about abomination. You could only be an abomination should you touch a pig, or eat, eat pig meat, or hurt pigs, or anything to do with pigs, or homosexuality, or any of those kind of things. It was seen as an abomination. So this son went to the place of abomination, and there he became an abomination. It was worse than sinner. Much worse. Untouchable. It was a place where should you touch such a person, you had to go home and do certain rituals in washing yourself, cleansing yourself for, uh, because of the amount of sin and filth that the person was representing. That's where the sun went. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. It's exactly what the Lord does. It leaves you in famine and in want. And then you become a slave of the law. And when he had joined himself to a citizen of the country, listen to this, he joined himself to a citizen of that country saying, I'm becoming this abomination. And he sent him into the field to feed swine. And he would have loved to fill his belly with the husks of the swine. And no man gave it to him. It was worse than the pigs. If the people that represent abomination sees you as so filthy that they don't even give you the food that the pigs eat, you are lower than the low. And he arose, and, okay, and this is what he said. <clears throat> he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Why? Because he was hungry. This guy's motive is not even pure. He's hungry. He thinks of a business deal with his father. At least he knows that his father is good to the extent that he will care for the servants. So let me say, I'll be a servant. What was the reason? Just to have some food. Survival skills. That's what he's busy with. 
And he arose and, uh, he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, the father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And his son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And the father interrupted his stupid speech, his stupid speech. And he said, the father immediately spoke to the servants and said, Bring forth the robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring, bring here the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. You see, the father never lost vision of who the son was. Like Peter that denied Jesus thrice, in his own mind, he was, wasn't a disciple anymore. He was lost in the declaration of sin. That's where Peter was. But Jesus called him the rock. Or rock. He says, for on this revelation you have, Peter, will the church be built. He said, you will, you Peter, will be the one that will unlock, that will bind the legalistic teaching in your first message that you will preach. And Peter gave up, disqualified himself by obedience to the lie that he heard, and he went back to fishing. And Jesus appeared to Mary and said, go and tell my disciples and tell Peter. Because if he said, go and tell my disciples, Peter wouldn't have come because he didn't see himself as a disciple anymore. He disqualified himself. But Jesus never forgot who Peter is. But Peter did. And here he comes. He never forgot his son. Now I, I read up on this and it's, it is the truth that Jews above the age of 30 wouldn't run. It would, they would, it would be an dis absolute disgrace. And the reason why it would, wouldn't be, they didn't want to show their ugly legs with their veins and whatever, you know, and they had to like make a Bermuda shorts of their, you know, the robe they were, and they had to run. It was just absolute disgrace. You know, they had, in running, they would expose their nakedness. And this father, against all tradition, against all law, against doesn't matter what who thinks, never saw the son as an abomination, ran and only referred to him as son. Law would say abomination, law would say sinner, spit on the ground, sneer at, but God says, my son. Even in the Old Testament, when, you know when Jesus was on the earth before the resurrection, He said to people that has not even accepted Him, He said, don't you know, your heavenly Father will care for you. It doesn't mean everybody is saved. He comes with the truth so that people can believe the truth and be saved. And he came and made something true by taking away all death and all sin so that we could believe the truth and be born from the truth. I want to end off with this. You know, as what the prodigal son was lost in his belief about who he was, the older brother was lost in what he believed 
You know, and this shallow life, this empty life that the older brother was living was just a life wherein it was a wretched life, a life, I put it this way, the wretched empty life of the older brother finds expression fully in the death of the sick and the needy. Here he comes, self-righteousness, lost in the law, lost in legalism. He can only find full expression of his shallow, wretched life in the death and the punishment of those who don't live up to his standard of living. For I have always been here for the Father. I have always served the Father. The end of that shallow life is the punishment and the death and murdering the son that is equally lost just in another way. That emptiness I never want in my life ever again. What gives me joy is when I look at somebody that is what we would call a sinner that is lost in his sin, that's lost in his drug abuse, that's lost in his love for money and I can look at that person with a compassion and see the being the, that is inside caught by the law and its fruit. Having that love and that moving of the inner being. Manning comes and he says that we can never be, compare God's compassion with human compassion, which I fully understand, and understand the context in which he says that. But I also want to introduce to you and submit to you that we have been given the ability to feel what God feels. You can be moved with compassion. I remember when I gave a car away, <clears throat> you know, it was exciting for me because to feel how it's going to feel to give somebody a car. And I gave a car to somebody that was one of my friends, a very good friend, a supporter of the ministry, that wasted it all, divorced his wife, um, got into drugs, messed it all up, and had no reason, there was no reason in how he lived. It was not supporting a ministry, it was not giving something to somebody that did good this guy was actually by what he did people came to me in town and said to me you know how could you ever befriend such a person they say that to me they said you are squandering your name in town because you are a friend of this guy and I could give him a car I want to tell you what a life and I don't boast in myself in doing that, but I can say we have been introduced, we have been introduced into having the compassion of God. Where we can love people, where we can come to ourselves and see them for who they truly are. You know, the Bible talks about publicans and sinners or tax collectors and sinners. We got the sinners, the abomination people, and then you got the tax collectors. The Jews, the Jews believed that the, the nation Israel was, and they still believe, is God's nation, and that the Messiah would come for them, subverting all nations under them. So God's plan was to elevate and save the only 
only um, definition for salvation for a Jew is to be saved from other nations that oppress them. They don't have the context of salvation we have. They don't see themselves as lost. Jews are, don't even be, they believe that you can only go to hell for one year. That, that's what they believe. And hell would be a place where God teaches you. That's all they believe. They, they've got no concept of ever being lost. They don't know that. I'm talking about traditional Judaism. I don't know what some of the guys believe now, but traditional Judaism, that's the only way. The only way the salvation could be defined for them is we got saved from the Egyptians. That's the only way. So then now, they were under the oppression of Rome. And they had to pay taxes to Caesar. And the will of God would be that these Jews, you know, uh, uh, that God would come and save the Jews from the oppression of Rome. That's the only definition. That would be, they were awaiting the, the Messiah to do that and that only. And then there were people that were Jews that worked for these Romans and collected taxes from the Jews and then gave it to the Romans and then they could live off that by taxing extra. They were seen as the worst of the worst. They were above abomination. Their names were read every Sabbath so that everybody could know who they are, excommunicated. You could not do business with them. You could not do business. They were, the, they were so hated. Now listen to this. Here was Zacchaeus. Climb the tree. I don't have time to go into everything there. But Jesus stopped and said to Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. Now listen to this. For today, in Afrikaans, vandaag moet ek by jou aan huis gaan. Today I must go to your house. We've always seen the must as the father told him, you'll better go there. For I'm sending you there. That's not what Jesus said. What he was saying was almost like an alcoholic would say, I must have another drink. I can't not have it. There's an inner drawing wherein this greatest abomination which nobody would ever want anything to do with that would actually in legal legalistic terms ruin Jesus' ministry he said today I must eat at your house and eating with sinners was saying like I said I'm seeing myself in your stature I'm seeing myself in your status I'm fully identifying with you you are my friend. You are like my family. This he did long before Zacchaeus repented of any of his sins. And he befriended Zacchaeus. God loves you. He loves all people. The salvation we need is to be saved from the lie. Believe the truth. For I submit to you in the measure that you continue in the lie is the measure in which death manifests in your life and it can manifest eternally. For God has come to give us life by bringing this gospel.